Well, hello, family. Um, for those of you who don't know me, um, my name is Anna Turkovich. I'm married to that guy over there. And we are expecting our first turkey next May. So we are pretty stoked about that. Um, when I found out which passage I would be preaching on, it kind of cracked me up because back when I was 10 years old, this same chapter was given to my two older siblings to memorize for Bible quizzing. And so we heard this passage over and over and over and over again. And my brother especially loved the line that was like, one Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. And he would literally just go around the house saying that. So it, when I heard that this was the passage, I was like, how cool is God? Um, but yeah, so of course, Pastor Joel had to go and skip a sermon. So we go from Paul before the Sanhedrin to Paul on a boat. I was like, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, friend. Uh, so we're going we're gonna to catch up briefly here. Um, and we ended last week with Jesus telling Paul that just as you've testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify about me in Rome. And that's super important for later, so I just want you to hold on to that promise. We're going to get back to that. Um, so after that, people form a plot to kill Paul. Big surprise there. Every other week he had a plot to kill him, it feels like. Um, but Paul's nephew hears them. They're stopped. And I, seriously, for people who failed all the time, they were really persistent. Um, Paul is sent to the governor who listened to his case but let him chill in prison for a couple years because he wanted to please the Jews. After that, a new governor listened to Paul and declared he was innocent, yet instead of releasing him, he was willing to give him another trial. Paul was like, nope, done with this. I appeal to Caesar. The governing authorities knew he was innocent and yet continued to detain him. As a Roman citizen, Paul had the right to bypass the local authorities and appeal to be tried in Rome. I imagine Festus's response kind of like that of the cardinal in the movie Three Musketeers, where he jumps off his throne, kicks off the stool, and is like, that can be arranged. So that, that was the picture. Couldn't get the clip, but imagine that. Uh, but yeah, so before he sends him, King Agrippa and his wife come, to, um, come, and Paul is allowed to share his story with them. And after listening, King Agrippa is gripped intended, by his story, and says, this man has done nothing deserving of death or imprisonment. He could have been released if he had not appealed to Caesar. Are you still with me? Because that <laughs> brings us to today's passage. Um, so Paul has been in prison in Caesarea for two years. So they finally decide to sail for Italy so he can appear before Caesar. He's placed under the guard of a centurion named Julius, who's likely a commander of 80 to 100 men. And one cool detail I found out while I was like researching this guy was that a centurion always fought from the, like, the front of the line in battle. So the casualties among them were like very high because they were always super easy to spot. And so this guy, Julius, was no pansy. Um, he is a, Paul's accompanied by two other men, the doctor, Luke, who authored this book, and then a young man named Aristarchus. Um, and this man was someone Paul had met in Ephesus a few years back. And the articles I read said he probably either had to buy his own ticket or make himself Paul's slave so that he would be allowed to come. And in a later epistle, it says that Aristarchus is my fellow prisoner. So whichever of those options happened is like this man loved Paul so deeply that he was willing to do whatever to be with him. 
Um, so this first ch- part of the chapter feels like we're reading Luke's sea log, like his daily journal, and it's whew, all over the place. Um, I was kind of dizzy trying to keep it all straight, so I turned to Google and hoped for a map that would help, and lo and behold, there we go, you can't see it at all, but that prettiness, it's like boop, 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 boop. Um, it was like he goes all over Asia, but it's like, if you can't see it, it maybe, maybe it'll make you feel better, maybe not. Look, look on Google later. Um, so they're sailing along with the ports in Asia, and then they switch boats in Alexandria. After some slow going, we come to a critical decision. Do they stay in Fair Havens, which is this place that was notoriously horrific during winter, and it was like, not the best place to stay, or do they continue on and spend the winter in Phoenix, which was a harbor of Crete? Now, Paul was a really experienced seafarer at this point. The scholars' like low estimations were that he had already done at least 11 journeys and traveled over 3,500 miles. 3,500, yeah. Um, and so he feels like if they don't stop and don't continue on, he's like, there's going to be serious destruction to the boat and possibly our lives. But the captain of the ship and like most, the most of the crew was like, we should continue on. So the centurion is like, you know what? We're going to go with him. So this is where we're going to start reading in chapter 27, verse 13. It says, when a gentle south wind began to blow, they saw their opportunity. So they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force called the Northeaster swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind, so we gave way to it and were driven along. As we passed the lee of a small island called Kata, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure, so the men hoisted it aboard. Then they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together. Because they were afraid they would run aground on the sandbars of Sirtis, they lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they, be- they began to throw the cargo overboard. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. So have, have you ever been in this kind of storm where you just lose all hope that you're going to make it out onto the other side? Like Luke shares here from a very deeply vulnerable place, and he's just like all hope had been lost for the men on the ship. But there was one person who was not in that same place. In verse 21, it says, After they had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Classic, I told you so. (laughs) Then you would have spared yourself this damage and loss. But now, I urge you, keep up your courage, because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of the God, to whom I belong and whom I serve, stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. Do you hear Paul's courage in this? It's just like he has been given a promise from God that he will testify in Rome. And so he's confident that God will not 
go back on that promise. His visit from the angel confirmed it, but it also gave everyone with him something they had lost. He was promised the lives of all those who were with him on the ship, 276 people, and not one would be lost. They could hope again. But, as is often the case, there was a war against hope. They were still caught in the storm by the 14th day. The sailors sensed they were getting close to land, and while that was a good thing, it also meant they could be dashed by the rocks and like the ship could be destroyed. So they slyly try to lower the lifeboat to get away. Um, but Paul warns the centurion that they need to stay together if everyone wants to live. And the centurion, he's a little bit wiser the second time around, actually heeds Paul's word more closely, and he has the, sailor, the soldiers cut the lifeboat off so no one could use it. And so in verse 33, it says, Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, You have been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. After he said this, he took some bread and gave thanks to God in front of them all. Then he broke it and began to eat. So what does this picture remind you of? How often did we see Jesus in the Gospels taking bread, breaking it, and giving thanks to his Father? We see him in the darkest storms of his life, right before the cross. He's sharing bread with his disciples in the Last Supper. And then this very act was the thing, the very thing which the disciples recognized that it was Jesus in their darkest storm of their life when they had thought Jesus had died. The disciples walking with him on the road to Emmaus, they couldn't recognize him until he broke the bread and gave thanks to his father. And they were like, that's him. And so few, if any, on the ship probably recognized this gesture from Paul, but Paul was following in his master's footsteps. The result was that the men were encouraged and willing to eat. Another thing this makes me think of is Psalm 23, where it says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And Paul, Paul was not among friends on this boat, save his two companions. There were soldiers that were there to like, protect him, and sailors and other prisoners, but these weren't his friends. But in, in this moment, God prepares a table for him. Uh, so daylight finally comes, and the sailors see a sandy breach and run the beach and run the ship aground. The pounding waves cause the stern to break into pieces. And here, Paul's life is put in jeopardy once again, because there was a Roman law. The, the Roman law was so strict that if a guard were to lose a prisoner, they, it was their life for the prisoners. So they were. It gave you some great incentive to keep your eyes open. Um, but to prevent that, the sailors, the soldiers, planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping. But the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. The rest were to get there on planks or on other pieces of the ship. In this way, everyone reached land safely. Safe. After two weeks of the intense storm, they were all safe. So you may, you may ask, what in the world does this mean for me? I don't know about you, but I've never really been on a boat like this, let alone shipwrecked. Um, but what is God saying to me through this story? 
And we're often taught to ask four questions of a passage. Who is God? Who am I? What is God saying? And what am I going to do about it? So I just want to start unraveling this with you. One thing I see in this passage is that God is not only a promise maker, but he's a promise keeper. If he says it, you can hold on to it with your very life because God can't lie. And this, this reminded me of a passage in Hebrews that seemed to go perfectly with this story. Um, in Hebrews 6, it said, God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, for, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. So Jesus went through many storms in his life on our behalf. Excuse me. Cold this week. Um, One of the most notable was when he was sleeping while a storm raged around him. In that instance, the disciples were filled with fear and terrified. But in this storm, you see another disciple, and there's not fear in, in his demeanor at all. There's this confidence Because Jesus already entered the storm and conquered it. And the last one, he spoke, peace, be still. And it was. Because of who God is, we see Paul illustrate in this passage who we are. We are safe. We are secure. We are held. We are confident. When the storms attacked Paul, he rested in the promise of his God. And he had a secure anchor of hope. So what is God saying to us? There are three things that really stuck out to me from this passage. And the first is that the storm is not an obstacle for God's glory to be revealed in your life. I know most of us have not been through a storm like this, but I fully believe we've each faced our own kind of storm. Each one of ours might look completely different, but it's very real. And I don't know about you, but most storms seem to have many rounds of pounding waves. We weather one and get hit again before we seem to have a chance to catch our breath. We didn't read the passage, but the very next scene after this, Paul gets bitten by a viper. It's like, are you kidding me? He just made it through a massive storm. It's like, couldn't the guy get a break? But Paul refused to see it as an obstacle. It wasn't an excuse for him to stop serving God. He just continued to press into God in spite of the storm. And a family very near and dear to some of my siblings went through this just a little bit ago. Um, Their story started off, it was a young couple, and their first child was born, stillborn. Like that, crazy enough, but like a few years later, and a few kids, it was like everything was going great. And then the mom found out she had really aggressive breast cancer. And so... They had that storm that just seemed to just take the wind out of them. But literally the very week where she was declared cancer-free, like she posted on her Instagram, ringing the bell, like, I'm cancer-free. Not a few days later, a safe fell on her three-year-old little girl and killed her. And it's just like, what, what are you doing, God? It's like, did this family not go through enough? And it's where... Where is the break in the storm there? And we ask these questions all the time. 
And the watching world asks, where is your God in that? And I was reading some quotes by Johnny Erickson Tata, who many of you might know her story. Um, paralyzed from a diving accident at age 16, and she, was, she lived the, is living the rest of her life as a quadriplegic. And just recently, she was diagnosed with stage 3 breast cancer. And she's someone we'd say has a right to question God. But this was her response. He has chosen not to heal me, but to hold me. The more intense the pain, the closer his embrace. In the face of the storm that threatens to overwhelm you, our God is not silent. He is not distant. It is in the storm that we experience his embrace like never before. God can handle your pain and your questions. It's totally okay to ask God, where are you in this storm? And because I, you can ask it to him, you can scream it at him, whatever you need to do. But I want to challenge you when, you when you ask him that, to actually sit there and wait. Because I do believe God wants to reveal to you his presence in your storm. Another thing I see is that the storm does not render you useless or ineffective. I think we often feel like we are on the shelf in the middle of the storm. It seems to call to us to bunker down and care for number one. But as we look at Paul in this passage, we see, see him stepping forward in his storm. He allowed God to use his voice to challenge and encourage the people around him. We also see him giving thanks in the middle of the storm. It can be the hardest thing to do, but when we start to give thanks in the storm, our focus shifts from the waves to the face of our master. And it was cool because I had a, a pause here and Brooke said the very thing I was going to talk about because I'm going to challenge you, echoing Brooke, to go home and write down the name of your storm. And if you have it in your mind now, write it down now so you don't forget. But underneath the name of your storm, I want you to start begin writing a list of what you can give thanks for. And maybe start a journal, write a few each day. It's, it's something that just takes our focus off of our storm and puts it on the face of our master. And it might be really hard to do this at first, but as we practice giving thanks in the storm, what the enemy wanted to cause isolation, bitterness, and despair, God can turn it into hope and thanksgiving. And with one turn of our head from down to up, we deny our storm the place of power, and we release it into God's hands. And the third thing I saw was that the storm can be the very thing that God wants to use to showcase his glory and draw many to him. I'm sure if Paul had a choice, he would have chosen, he'd have voted for no shipwreck. But he didn't have a choice. He was a prisoner on a boat that he was pretty sure already was going to face disaster. It was like, I told you. But in this storm, God used Paul's life to showcase his glory. For all we know of those 276 people on board, there may have only been two other believers. But every single one of those 276 heard about the God who rescues and draws near to us in the storm. Can you imagine the stories that were told from the ship's passengers? How many people must have heard about the God who keeps his promises? God used that storm to draw men to himself. 
So I want to ask you, how is God using your storm? Who is watching you? I think of people in our congregation that are facing their greatest storm while it seems like everyone's watching. I think of Clarence, uh, who's battling his second bout of cancer. And honestly, I like his honesty that, yeah, it's hard and it sucks. But his absolute trust in a God who's with him. And I think of my mom, who's been in a wheelchair for over 25 years. A daily faces chronic pain. Blame the pregnancy. <laughs> daily faces chronic pain and increasing debilitation. And I see her constantly encouraging those around her, writing notes to those who are suffering, counseling women, making everyone feel like family. I'm sure we could find dozens more in this congregation alone, men and women walking through storms but giving God the glory in the midst of it. And it's beautiful. Um, my biggest storm came a few years ago when the ministry, ministry I was serving at came under attack. Reports from within and without, allegations, rumors, and the like. Um, I was serving in the call center, and as things got more public, the public seemed to fight back. I was in a place where I did not know what to do, didn't know what to believe. At the very beginning of the storm, I asked God if I should leave. And he led me to where I was reading in Exodus at the time, where it talks about the tabernacle. Before um, the temple, there was a like where the temple was used as a place for God to meet with his people. Before that, there was a tent. And he would when the Israelites were wandering around in the wilderness, God would appear above the tabernacle in a cloud by day and a fire by night. And any time that that was over the tabernacle, the Israelites stayed put, and they knew they weren't supposed to move. But as soon as it lifted, they were like, okay, pack up, move on. Um, and so I, God spoke to me in this, and I knew that his cloud for me had not moved yet for me to pack up and move on. So I stayed. And the battle only got worse. People I lived with and worked with packed up and left and often spoke out against the ministry, causing more pain. People would call in all the time and cancel their accounts and say nasty things. As one of the heads of the call center, I had to handle hundreds of calls, emails, letters, and the like. And it felt like all I did was come in every day and make cancellations. Um, there was just no break with it. And then, after I went, did work all day, I would go home, and I was uh, a leader for uh, the students that were at the ministry, which was like around 60 at the time. And they were dealing with the same questions and pain, and so they would ask me. It was like so many different conversations. And it was just, there, were, there was no rest from the pain of it all. And I would sit with God with an open Bible in my lap and just not be able to focus, and it was like, I told Joel was, Joel had a lot of conversations with me during that time, but I would, I just couldn't move past it, like, I couldn't focus on the word, and there are so many passages and have um, tears and dates, like, clinging to promises, um, but yet I kept clinging to the word I had received from him, that the cloud had not yet moved, and Paul Paul had heard from the Lord that he would testify in Rome. 
And can you imagine how tightly he clung to that promise as in the storms that followed? And I did the same. I kept asking God, have you changed your mind yet? He hadn't. Um, there was about a year and a half of that until finally God revealed very clearly to me that his cloud had lifted and it was time for me to move. And that brought me back here um, and back to you all. And in my pain, God led me to work with Aliquippa Impact and then later to join staff at the church. In the middle of all that, he led me to my husband, really grateful for that. And he brought us to where we are today. Granted, life can still suck a lot. But I look back on that storm and I am so thankful because in it, I felt God nearer than I ever had. I remember one day just going home while I was still at the ministry. I went home and I found an empty closet and I just fell on my knees and sobbed. And I just told God, it hurts. And it's in moments like that where we're raw and vulnerable that we allow God to come close and hold us. And I'm reminded of the song from Bethel. We actually um, sang it this week at Aliquippa Impact staff meeting. But the lyrics really, really seem to fit this passage today. I'm not going to sing it. But these were the lines that stuck out. I raise a hallelujah in the presence of my enemies. I raise a hallelujah louder than the unbelief. I raise a hallelujah. My weapon is a melody. I raise a hallelujah. Heaven comes to fight for me. I'm going to sing in the middle of the storm louder and louder you're going to hear my praises roar. Up from the ashes, hope will arise. Death is defeated. The king is alive. Family, may this be our anthem as we leave this place. I don't know what the storm is that you are facing, but you are not alone. His presence is with you in the storm, and he's using it not only to shape you, but to showcase his glory to the lost world around you. Be real. Let God know just how much it hurts, but also let him hold you. And honestly, let your family hold you too. We are here for you. No matter who you talk to, they have been through a storm. And as you let them be the embrace of your father, they can walk with you and hopefully sing with you through the storm. So thank you guys.